Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. Let Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, July 18th, 2022. Sounds correct. This is just too hot too to, to do think. the podcast this is heroic. today. It's a heroic duty on our part. So we we yeah. put it off till today and it's, the weather's not any better. And it's only going to get hotter. That's so, July, man. July. That's, that's for sure. That's supposed to be hot. It's as advertised. As advertised. That's correct. That's correct. But we have been out there, notwithstanding the weather, including a trip to the urban center, to New York City. We went on Saturday because uh, Tamsin identified an emergency theater run from out of the blue. Caught me completely unawares. Yeah, I mean, it was risky because, um, you know, I've lost faith in recommendations uh, by the New York Times. Mm. Not that this was, I didn't read a review of this, but I read an article about a French musical called, known as Notre Dame de Paris, based on Victor Hugo's novel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, similar to Disney's animated Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes. And uh, it was an interesting article. What was stunning about it was it was first produced in France in 1998. It's been a huge hit. It's been translated into eight languages, performed in 23 countries. Um, And uh, I never heard of it. Right. And it's not, you know, we say musical. It's not Oklahoma, right? So it, it's, uh, as we've been discussing it, I said... It's not even Les Mis. No, no, it's uh, two steps beyond Les Mis. It's, I said opera, you said rock, and I guess that it's a rock opera. Um, well, the quote I read was, not a musical, but a rock show with a strong storyline. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. And, but not rock in the sense of rock of ages, crazy 80s rock. It's just uh, popular type music. Uh, as you observe while we're watching it, and there's a real connection, it's sort of Celine Dion type music to some respects. I mean, and apparently she has a connection with this composer. Yeah, we'll go into And has recorded that. some of the songs. So I just give people a feel for the music, and it's, but it's kind of soaring music, and there's a ton of songs. Well, it's kind and, of French European pop. Yeah, people can't see your shoulders when you do that, but yes. Uh, they can feel it. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's very entertaining. Um, but we, we should just say, it's for those who have forgotten, yeah. it's basically the story of an exotic woman, Esmeralda, right. you know, gypsy, yeah. you know, uh, undocumented, uh, you right. know, but, fortune teller, but, 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 who but, knows what, siren, who is being... A, a siren. Who, who, a who siren, Makes yes. men lose all their senses. I actually saw one of you said that this woman didn't meet those... Requirements for some reason. Okay, well, you're a better judge of that than I. I thought you. But okay. anyway, yeah, she she's uh, being. There are three men vying for her attentions, right. and uh, one's a soldier who's already married, is engaged to be married. Uh, one's a priest, and the other is Quasimodo, who's yes. so, you know so the they're all questionable choices. Really. Um, they're not good matches. They're not you know you wouldn't swipe right for any of them. But uh, those are her choices. And, and look, I'm not giving anything away. You say it doesn't exactly work out. But uh, it is sort of a soaring entertainment. There's a lot of... Uh, passion, lust. More passion. Emotion. More lust. 
And gymnastics. Oh, yeah. So the dancing is off the charts, and there's this lively limestone, faux limestone wall. It's I don't know why you keep rock. saying limestone. Not, to, I read that it's supposed to be limestone. Oh, really? But there is okay. huge... Well, the point is, there, it's a combination of rock climbing and dancing. I hadn't seen those combined before. So people are sort of dancing out of the wall. It's, it's something. Uh, it, it's, it's a uh, lavish spectacle. How's that? Right. And it was always meant to be that. Yes. Okay. It was. It's. It's been staged the same way all twenty-four years. And uh, yeah. It's, okay. And, and it's and it's it's almost no set with the exception of your limestone pillars. My limestone uh, pillars evoking right. you know a gar- sense of the, the cathedral. The big gargoyles. Oh yes, there are a couple of gargoyles make an appearance. Your, they're impressive. Don't, don't, <laughs> you, you like gargoyles? Come I on. do. The real gargoyles are a little more impressive. Yes. Um, they weren't available. Okay. They, they did pretty well. So it was a soaring entertainment. And um, I know you have the names of the the writers, the uh, composer. You want to go into that now, or do you want to go into? Well, I think we're we're, we're running toward the, the tail end of this. So go ahead. Who are the composers? Uh, the lyricist Luc Plamondon, yeah, who um, has a relationship with Dion. Celine Dion. Yeah, okay. You know, she sings his a lot of his songs. Well, you can you see know, it. You can he, hear it in the music. He is a French Canadian. Right. Uh, there was a know, big Canadian contingent behind. Yes. Um, and uh, Ricardo Cacciante. Yeah, and that's the writer of the music. And, right. Uh, it's a lot of music. And he um, he's a pretty international guy, born in the Saigon, raised in France, right. lived for a while in Rome. Well, international is the key word because we think New York's the center of the universe. Uh, and it, maybe, I don't know, maybe it isn't. Uh, or maybe there's other parts besides the center, right? Anyway, um, Plamondon gets the idea. Yeah. I guess uh, for this um, uh, musical based on Notre Dame de Paris, yeah. and he gets together with Cochante, and uh, you know who has some music lying around, and sparks fly, things happen, and uh, they write this uh, well, musical in almost no time. They present it. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, kind of a you know one of those uh, tryout run-throughs for a potential backer. He buys it. Yeah, you know, he he he. They're almost immediately signed to uh, um, perform it at uh, the Palais des Sports. Yeah, in Paris. Right. You know, in a very short amount of time, and which which tells you already it's meant to be a. Spectacle. Right. It's meant to be, and and it was, uh, you know, always um, thought to be. The first performances were kind of thought of as, you know, in concert mode. Right. You know, very little, with the exception of the acrobatics. Uh, you know, not a lot of stage set, etc. So from you know, it's always been true to itself, and it's had the same staging for twenty four years, and uh, no matter what language, etc. Uh, yeah, look, you know, it's funny that you just mentioned. I hadn't appreciated this that he had the a lot of the music lying around. That that's what they used to call musicals a trunk show. That when a composer has a bunch of tunes lying around and uses those as a substantial base of the music. That um, 
The Music Man's a trunk show. Meredith Wilson has written all these songs, and they sort of sewed them together into a show, and it became The Music Man. Well, these weren't songs. He had, he had some yeah, melodies, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Well, look, the other ready thing, to roll. You know, these soaring melodies, they're almost operatic, when we say rock opera. But the other thing that I think was stunning that we have to comment on is they have a tremendous following. So yeah. I yeah. hesitate to use the word groupies, but we were in what used to be called the State Theater, where the City Opera performed. Now it's called the David Koch, Koch Theater. Very lavish, Lincoln Center. Uh, people are actually pretty well dressed, but it's a very elegant setting. It's and a you, really international. And you had people really international running group. up the aisles to photograph. You had people singing along with the songs yeah. to some degree. They knew what they were seeing. We were the only people in the dark. The only people in the dark. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the only people in the dark, but you know, we were in the out group, so it was like being in a foreign country for a short time. And uh, you know, I should say that uh, they they released this all very cleverly. I mean, they released the soundtrack. Yeah. before uh, the play was actually mm-hmm. produced or the musical mm-hmm. was produced. So there were, you know, not unlike Six yeah. <laughs> uh, in this day and age, um, there was already a huge demand yeah. uh, for the music and, you know, and certain songs yeah. uh, well, well, no. but, you know, had, but... had become hits. But, and you know, I, we should also mention there's no speaking. There no, it's all singing. It's, well, singing. it's well, sung through. You would really underscore that at the end they had sort of a sing along. We were invited to a sing along in the very long, actually ten minutes of uh, the one character steps the out and, and does singing, like the theme song, and he and he motions the audience to sing along, and they start singing along. Well, it's in French, okay. <laughs> so we're at a French sing along in New York, and you know they and it, I wouldn't say I don't know what percentage sang along, but it, there was there were people singing along in French. Yeah. Uh, it so, wasn't a huge outpouring because probably some people were like us didn't quite know the words, but uh, yeah. you know. Anyway, it's uh, it's so this is the first time it's been in New York. There was a shortened version in Las Vegas about twenty years ago or yeah. something, um, but other than that, it's been everywhere. It's been and there are uh, Russian so versions, you Polish, the chance, you'd have Korean. to rush to see it. But in any yeah. event, you it's never even know. been performed uh, in Kiev, right? In, in the Ukraine, Kiev, yeah, right? So, Not Kiev, Kiev, Kiev. Okay, Kiev. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, it's been all over. So only only we didn't know about it. Only New Yorkers, only us. But uh, and it was, uh, now it was, we know. It's certainly worth. Oh, the other thing is in in the New York performance. Yeah, uh, there was a full orchestra. Yeah. Uh, generally, it's performed with pre-recorded music. There's no live that. orchestra. Yeah, I can believe that because it's it's a lot of instruments. Yeah, it's a lot. To, it's a lot to put together. So so it's a whole you know twenty first century. Deal. That's, that's us, Tempted. It's 21st century. We're, we're, uh, we're it was the fun. Yeah, it was, it was fun. All right, so another thing we've been watching, uh, well, another thing we watched this week, very different thing, completely different. Turn the page. Uh, streaming a show called The Bear. And The Bear, and I, I, I want to draw this out from you because I want people to hear this, that I had suggested it at some point and you had rejected it out of hand and somehow... Came around. Am I being? Yeah. Clear? Well, it, well, it's it's the usual thing. It's the usual thing because, um, you know, you're not terribly fond of law firm shows. Yeah. And I get pretty tired of restaurant shows. Having worked in in restaurants right. a little bit. All right. And uh, this is a restaurant. So show. I was not looking forward to another restaurant show. Yeah. Um, I was very skeptical, and you know, then I read they just. This past week, I guess uh, they've had a lot of a lot of articles, a lot Three of press, articles. a lot of press, yeah. 
and uh, I was convinced that we should give it a try, and we did, and it's terrific. And the it's Bear, all, The it, Bear on Hulu. Yeah, but you know, it, it, we could talk about the, what's going on, but it's not really critically uh, tied to the idea of a restaurant. I know everything happens at a restaurant, all the activities there, but what really works about it is the characters are real, the conflicts, the emotional issues whatever, you are drawn in because it's just done extremely well. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. It's not like you have to say to yourself, well, I'm into food. It's important for me to see the way they make a beef sandwich. I mean, that doesn't do it. But it's just well done. You know, it's well done from a lot of different aspects. I mean, I I think it's well written. Okay, I think the characters are developed in an interesting way. They're interesting good variety of characters. Okay? It's... uh, Shot in yeah, it's shot in a very immediate way with handheld cameras. Yeah, uh, and the action seems very real. And you know, lovingly on the food sometimes. Yeah. Okay, it's got interesting music in the background. It does. It does. Um, so in many different ways, it's just uh, it's a treat. It's yeah. a treat. It is not a laugh a minute, and it is not you know terribly terribly dark. No, but it's, and it's also a half hour segment, or on the average, a half hour segment. But you're in reality, you're drawn in. It's, it, it, you know, I, I don't know what the magic uh, pill is that makes it work, but it does work. The showrunner is a guy named Christopher Storer. Uh, the star is a guy named Jeremy Allen White. There's a woman named uh, Io Atterbury who is, plays his second in command, is quite good. Um, it's good. It is good. And it's, with the exception of the language. Yeah, it's very it's, harsh language. It's, it's, it's too harsh, harsh language. It's too harsh. It's unnecessary. Well, but maybe mind. that's what people are like in Chicago. I, I, I have so. no idea. Maybe, but okay? I don't need to hear that. But I say, you know, if you're watching it with family, there's no cringeworthy sex scenes. No. It's really. family friendly in that no. sense. Well, there's not. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yes. um, so, but it is, uh, it is some... Uh, you know, things can get uh, heated. excited, heated yeah, yeah, in the kitchen, yeah. and uh, you know. But they they mix it up with humor, so yeah. it, it, it works. It doesn't. It, there's it, bad language, but not not bad people. I don't think. No, no. All right, so a quick little bit about art. I may drag it out. Yes. But um, <laughs> but um, you know, I'm reluctant to talk about uh, paintings that. Uh, you know, our audience can't see, right. but uh, I couldn't resist uh, the um, review section. Review section of the Wall Street Journal uh, in the masterpiece section it covers one of my favorite paintings, and they call it "The Horrors of War" by Peter Paul Rubens, painted mm-hmm. in 1637-38. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it as "The Consequences of War," mm-hmm. and it's very symbolic, uh, dramatic painting with allegorical figures and it's meant to capture mm. you know the consequences of the consequences of war and uh, it, it is symbolic and you know uh, as an art instructor art history instructor I you know I'm always explaining paintings to students mm. and sometimes uh, that gets rejected it's like oh can't we just enjoy the painting do we have to right. know what this means or and are you sure that's what it really means and what that's what that person stands for in this case we have a letter you know uh from uh, rubens to the guy who commissioned it you know saying this is what everything is this is what this figure represents 
This is what that figure represents. Well, so it's just kind of fun. Dispute it, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't dispute it. And you have the artist kind of walking you through the painting. Um, and so, you know, I, I've always thought it was a fun painting. I don't know if anybody else would think so. But I know one guy who did, right, and that is Pablo Picasso. Um, and, uh, you know, as I... You know, recently fell in love with Rubens Moore and, uh, you know, got to know that painting. The next time I saw Guernica, I realized Guernica is Picasso's version of Consequences of War. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, uh, is a paint is a painting that was uh, commissioned from Picasso for the Spanish Pavilion in the World's Fair during the 30s. Um, and it's a response to the bombing of civilians in the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, um, same, very similar emotions, etc. And uh, it's a great painting that for many years was on loan uh, to the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, not to be returned to Spain until... Franco, Franco was gone. gone. He's been gone for a while. And so it, well, it's been returned. Okay. Good. Okay. So anyway, so uh, that is uh, pictured in the review section. Also, uh, as part of a review of a book called Picasso's War by Hugh Eakin. And uh, Picasso's War um, relates how a handful of American admirers waged a three-decade battle of taste to create a museum and a market for modern painting in America, and how the protean, publicity-wise Picasso became a household name and even more unexpectedly potent symbol of American values. So just so we're clear, so the museum they're talking about is the Museum of Modern Art. Right, right. In the 50s in Manhattan. Right. And, uh, yeah, what, what, and, we, and our discussion of this, what you cued me into and I had no idea, was how much PR has to do with all this. Number one, and you can go into more depth. I mean, I can't. Well, I can't, what's interesting it, is, what's very interesting is America, the young country, yeah. with all the, with even at the turn of the 19th into 20th century, I mean, there's technology is happening like crazy, okay? Right. Not the most forward art taste. Right. Didn't like modern okay? art. Didn't like the, modern the people who could collect art, yeah. the people with the money, were buying mostly old masters, right. okay? As they describe it here, um, old masters, many of dubious provenance and mostly slathered in varnish that look like brown gravy. Right. So you have other people who are trying, you know, who, uh, other characters like Alfred Barr, who will be, you know, the first, uh, you know, head of the Museum of Modern Art, um, and John Quinn, a collector, um, are, you know, trying to, you know, turn people around, educate them, mm-hmm. convince them to take a look at, uh, you know, what's going on in Europe, you know, uh, and Modern art is not really happening even so much mm. in the U.S. Mm. You know, it's still very kind of landscape-oriented or whatever. Um, in fact, and, and Quinn, what's fun about him is he will underwrite that first great show, the, the Armory Show in 1913, uh, where people see Picasso, Duchamp, Matisse, etc. Um, and it's, it's a flop. You know, people complain. 
people, you know, art students demonstrate that this is all terrible. This is ridiculous stuff. Um, and, you know, and the, the paintings are mocked, etc. cetera. So, um, there, it, it, the show got a lot of publicity, but the art was well, the not book, selling. People were not buying right. this modern so art. The, the, the book, presumably, is about how they turned that around. How they turned it around. It had to do with, uh, you know, uh, the wars yeah. and uh, things that were happening. Just, uh, uh, you know, political changes that affected uh, uh, various um, art dealers and what happened to their their stock and, uh, you know, where it went and how it happened. But the most interesting aspect is changing the taste, the interest in uh, the artists. And that happens partly through the publication of Irving Stone's Lust for Life in 1934. Okay. That kind of surprised me because obviously that's about uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Right. So I assume like most... Um, people aren't art history majors that Vincent Van Gogh has been popular forever. And you tell me, not so much. Well, remember, during his lifetime, even he didn't in sell France. A painting, I know. No, he sold one painting. He sold one, he sold painting. one painting. Close to okay. zero. Okay. But his stuff was viewed as very crude. Right. Okay. And um, so, uh, as it says in this article, Stone refashioned Vincent Van Gogh as a martyr of outside art who lived like miners and peasants that he painted. Um, so this, uh, you know, uh, could be used as kind of a, a media-friendly kind of well, image look, for the artist. Look, the you know, the he's an outcast. He's yeah, independent. Yeah. He's an upstart, it's, which is what America is, right? I, I had no idea that Irving Stone's book was influential in that way. Because Irving Stone was... Not exactly Norman Mailer. He wasn't considered a great writer or, uh, you know, a great artiste. And yet, it sounds like he had a role to play here. Well, uh, books published in 1934, first big blockbuster show yeah. of Van Gogh's work is 1935. Okay. okay. And this starts the ball rolling for, you know, all of these artists, and, uh, you know, and for the continued uh, development and opening of the Museum of Modern Art. All right. So, so it's a... It's a fun book to read. I'm not doing justice to all the political well, aspects, you have to read the book. but uh, you know, and uh, and let's let's face it, Picasso not not a um, you know independent, democratic-minded well, guy. He doesn't you know? have to be. He's an artist, right? Right, right. And yet, uh, his art is seized upon as uh, right. you know great for uh, Americans, and uh, it sells. So right. that would be so. Anyway, again, Picasso's War by Hugh Eakin. That looks like a fun book to read. Just to, you know, it's it's that good old American marketing. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea that was. I just thought the cream rose to the top. But keep in mind, yeah, what? Picasso. Yeah, it's not just crazy, you know, abstract nutty paintings. Yeah. All right. He. As we know from looking at Guernica, yeah. which is based on Rubens, yeah. you know, Picasso knew the great masters better than anybody, the oh, old yeah, masters yeah. better than anyone. Yeah. And he had skills. Yeah, okay. He had serious skills. Yeah, no one's um, I'm not putting down Picasso. The, the trick was, you know, to learn how to look at his, his art. All right, so here's a headline. Ex-goddess uses MBA to succeed in secular life. 
It's a headline which you have to read the article to believe it. Ex-goddess, and they mean it literally. Uh, it's about a uh, woman uh, whose uh, name is Kanira uh, Bajrakarya. Bajrakarya. Uh, from Nepal. And um, she was a Kumari. So you're saying to yourself, what is a Kumari? At least I'm saying that to myself. So here's what they do in Nepal, according to this article. Uh, apparently, that they uh, bestow uh, a certain set of young people, prepubescent young women, with the uh, status of goddess, uh, a dozen children, as a matter of fact, at a time, although there's some hierarchy there. And uh, it goes back to an ancient tradition uh, and in which they are deemed to be invested with uh, goddess-like powers. Well, they're and, like and an insight. earthly manifestation okay. of the goddess, right? Yes, yes, earthly manifestation. Sounds good. Supernatural powers. They're treated as goddesses might be treated. They're not allowed to walk. People don't talk to them. They don't talk to other people. They're revered. They're worshipped to some degree. And this woman in particular made an impression because she was the head Kumari during her uh, time. And when she was six years old, she uh, wept for four days, which was viewed as a terrible omen for Nepal, uh, foreshadowing perhaps national tragedy. And sure enough, on the last day of her crying, 2001, the crown prince of Nepal killed nine members of the royal family, including his parents, before shooting himself. Uh, obviously a tragic event, but it sort of cemented her reputation of having goddess-like powers. But here's the interesting thing about that. Uh, there's a little pragmatic aspect of this, and that is that even in Nepal, you age out of your goddess status. I mean, right. she, she graduated from the goddess role when she was 15 years old, as one does, apparently. And uh, the trick there is uh, there is no second act, generally. In other words, once you're right, no because longer they a live, goddess, you're they, a normal person. Well, they live very cloistered lives. Right. So she's not equipped to do anything, generally. And Goddesses are kind of behind the eight ball because they have no education. Right. Well, uh, Which is just weird. Uh, well, the, the whole thing is weird. And yet, I, I hesitate to say that because there are 30 million people in Nepal. So I'm not going to have to call anybody weird. But it's different. How's that? No, I mean, it's weird that you, you know, I mean, what are they doing all day? They could have... Yeah. Well, she's, she's anyway. Her she's, mother she's lobbied for her to be allowed, and she to got be an educated. education, and she continued her education, and uh, now uh, it, she followed through with an MBA, and now she is a loan officer at a financial institution. So she, she's still kind of a goddess. She's she, she, <laughs> yes, I she always has think. people's fates in her hands. She does, and she's evaluating their prospects. I thought it was also loans. interesting. I think her aunt was a Kamari. Yeah, she uh, also. I'm sure she had a good yeah, Kamari background. Yeah, she, she, yeah. she learned the ropes the right way. Uh, and anyway, uh, she's uh, there's a little bit of a hangover issue in terms of her dating uh, prospects. She's not doing that well, they say, because there's a popular myth that says any man who marries a Kamari dies within a year. So uh, that's kind of a buzzkill in terms of her dating. But uh, she's yeah, looking but, to overcome you know, that. A lot of guys would... Uh, would take the year? Yeah, would take a year with a goddess. Really? <laughs> yes. A lifetime with uh, not-so-goddessy? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. I, yeah. I think she'll do all right. She looks like she's got a good head on her shoulders. She'll figure it out. She's got a good job. It's the important thing. Uh, yeah, look, again, you know, different strokes for different folks. It's, uh, it's a wide world out there. That's the theme today.
It is kind of astonishing that there are still goddesses. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's kind of fun. But, I, you know, I hope the girls have more, um, I don't know, interesting lives now. Well, I mean, she was very positive. Yeah, it, the one the art. She, she said it. She, she it was lovely. great. It was not. You know, it wasn't limiting. Right. Uh, it was. You know, people were very nice. It was. It was a good time. She's, yeah, it was a goddess. Now I have an MBA. I mean, it's, it's, she was moved on. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Um, so a big article in the New York Times about. Uh, Copying art. Well, it's about copying art, but it starts with with the big controversy, right? Is is you have the Elgin marbles in the British Museum, and you can tell people what the Elgin marbles are much better than I. Can. Well, it's it's fragments of the Parthenon from Greece. From Greece, Lord Elgin, right? So, so uh, brought them back. Right. Was, some people say stole them. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the issue. So when you go um, into the British Museum, an unsuspecting in the nineteenth century, unsuspecting American like me says, "What's this Greek sculpture?" It's a British museum. And then you explain to me, no, 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 that those are the Elgin, Elgin marbles. Uh, and yet the Greeks want them back, if you can believe it. And uh, is there a solution to that? Uh, and the solution may be in the form of excellent copies, which are now being made. Well, let's just marbles. go back. There is this whole problem well, yeah. with, you know, um, should artworks be repatriated? Yeah, Should sure. artworks that have been taken out right. of their home country right. be repatriated? Yeah. Okay. Now, one of the reasons Elgin ends up with these mm-hmm. is because at, uh, you know... He says they're not taken care in, of in the, Yes. In the 17th century, yeah. uh, you know, they were uh, storing... The Turks were storing munitions right. in, in them. And in, the Parthenon got kind of blown up during a skirmish with the Venetians. Uh, so, uh, you know... Uh, He's right to call them out. He's right to take them. The, you know, a lot of the... Uh, 40% of the sculptures had been destroyed by the right. time he takes them. Although even when he takes them, some of them are lost at sea. He has to get them back. It's it's quite uh, a thing. But, but, and, now, but now that that's passed. And now, and now Greece, is Greece saying, says, we'll take care of them. We'll take, we want them back. Right. We're going to take care of them. We have a purpose-built museum that, uh, you know... Will, where they will be stored in perfect conditions, etc. Right. So the article, and the British Museum is like, I don't think so. Well, the article, the angle of the article, and maybe it goes nowhere. You'll tell me is that uh, there is this process where they have these robotic uh, devices, which can well, they have a fabulous process. The Elton Morgan. yeah, and and they are almost identical with uh, the real thing, and uh, is that a substitute? Is that a solution? I didn't even finish the story about Lord Elgin because it's a good story. Oh, God, finish it. Okay. Is he, you know, he. Is it Elgin or Elgin? I'm getting it wrong. Uh, some, when I was in grad school, the cool kids were saying Elgin. Okay, fine. Go ahead. But, uh, you know, yeah, you can right. say it anywhere, any way you want. Yeah. I think so. Um, but anyway, um, he, uh, he does get, uh, he does pay the, the Ottomans, yeah. the Turks, right. to take these uh, marbles away and he actually um i guess pay how much did he pay he um he paid quite a uh i forget well anyway moving right along um so but um the shipping got delayed of course even back then uh, there were shipping delays and by the time uh, he's uh, one thing and another 
He's arrested in France. He's a prisoner of war. He's in, he's uh, loses his fortune, and he ends up selling the marbles to the British Parliament for thirty five thousand British pounds, the equivalent of about uh, uh, four million dollars today. Okay. Okay, not bad. Except it was about half what it cost him between okay. paying the Ottomans oh, and shipping all the all stuff right, so back. But he fully intended to, you know, decorate his Scottish okay. country house yeah. with these marbles. That's the way it and goes. he, you know, in distress, he has, he sells them to the Brits. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, um, there's, there's a guy, uh, Roger Michael, or Michelle, um, who has, who's the director of the Institute of Digital Archaeology. Yeah. Uh, and he's originally from Massachusetts, I think. And he has a process, an amazing process, um, where that involves, uh, you know, um, 3D uh, photogrammetry software yeah. uh, and uh, robots um, sculpting the uh, copies mm-hmm. of works like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he offered, he, you know, said to the British Museum, uh, you know, can we make some copies of uh, the marbles? And they said no. And so what he did was, um, on the down low, they, he, he sneaked his people into the museum yeah. with uh, iPads and iPhones, mm-hmm. and they took the pictures that they needed to, um, you know, program the robots, and uh, did that without letting them know. Well, look, I mean, uh, that's clever. But at the end of the day, you still have the issue. Is it important to have the originals, or is it just as good to have a wonderful copy? Well, you want you don't want the originals to be completely destroyed. Okay? Well, but that's not the issue. The issue is, are they going to be in England, or are they going to be in Greece? Um, so I'm just saying, I'm just introducing that idea that, you know, okay, that, that's a little bit of a moot question. If you have a process like this, where you could have an exact replica, I mean, copies are not new. Okay. As I always like to tell you, you know, the only thing we know about Greek sculpture is really from Roman copies. That's my point. Copies are not new. It's always been around. But it's not, so it's not going to solve the problem. The Greeks want the real originals, and so do the Brits. I mean, that's Everybody just new. wants it because there's a cachet with having, I you know. I understand. The thing so that's the fact that it's a better quality copy. Thousands of years old. solve the problem. Eh, but he's hoping that it will. It won't. Okay, it Mr. Won't. Uh, Mitchell. And, yeah. it, you know, it's still a matter of discussion, and, mm. you know, we'll see what happens there. But yeah. uh, I'm with you. Copies aren't new, so it's... It, Look, I don't, I'm not taking a side, but I mean, I, I do think that you're going to have that ongoing controversy. All right. So you have uh, Gary Player, all right, who you remember as a great golfer, right? Yes. No. It's Gary Player. Arnold Palmer's I, The name is familiar to me, but I don't know much about South him. South African golfer, fitness enthusiast, the man okay. in black. Always showed right. up in black. Blue. I'm looking at a picture. And, yeah. yeah, he doesn't look too fit. Oh, my God. He's 86 years old. They have very dark shadows on the picture. Let me see. Yeah, they're, they're hiding something. 86 is Really snappy. not showing. Really is a little younger there. That's the oh, point. Fabulous. For a golfer, okay, golfers so aren't always super Why fit. did he capture your imagination? Well, first of all, he captured my imagination years ago. He was considered a very interesting guy. Um, again, it was uh, it was considered exotic that he came from South Africa. He had a lot of success. And it's an interesting interview. I mean, he's still around. He talks about when he first came from South Africa, he had a total of 200 pounds. He had no backers. His prospects were 
based entirely on whether he could succeed on the tour. He shows up at uh, the British Open, and he has so little money that he can't even afford a hotel. He sleeps on the beach by the British Open. He says that would happen to be where they shot chariots of fire, so it's a very nice beach. But my point is, he had nothing. The man had nothing. And uh, it's a funny story about he started off by hitting his first shot uh, all the way to the side, uh, not even close to the fairway. And some onlooker says, uh, you know, what's your handicap? And he says, handicap, I'm a professional. And the man says, you're a professional? You must be a hell of a putter. Because if you hit like that, forget so he, it. So he doesn't do that well. Well, he... But he, he has a nice time sleeping on the beach. Yes, he, has nice, he eventually wins the tournament, but not that first that year. year. Not, not that the year. first year. Okay. But he has enormous success. And uh, he has a lot to say. I'm not going to bore you with everything he has to say, because I sense you're not a big golf fan. But here's two things I will say about him. Number one is, you always hear about people hoping to shoot their age in golf. That's a big standard. Okay. So, someone, obviously, as you get older, you can get a higher score to do it, but you lose something in your golfing ability. If you're 72, can you shoot a 72? That's tough. If you're 80... Maybe you can do it, but 80 is kind of limiting physically. So you see it's a race against time. He has shot his age 2,400 times. Okay. 2,000. You're not as impressed as you should be. 2,400 Is that like batting times. your weight? Is that like what? Batting your weight? No, batting your weight's easy. Okay. okay. All right. Maybe uh, for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, my point is that's not... That's a sort of a criticism is he can't even bat his weight. Shooting his age 24 times is unthinkable, all right? He has, matter of fact... Unthinkable. He has beaten his age okay. by 17 strokes six times. 17 strokes. You're still not impressed. It's I mean, he's a professional. It, no, no, no. Nobody does this. Okay. Nobody does this because he's so super fit uh, at this, you know, relatively advanced age, even for a golfer. He is a little too strict probably for your tastes. He says Americans are awful about their health. Only 2% of the most exercise and eat right. Uh, and that's what you've got to do. He says, I don't eat bacon. I don't drink milk. I don't eat ice cream. I love ice cream. But you just can't do it. So he's very strict about his diet. And it's paid off for him. Anyway, interesting guy, Gary Player. I guess you have to be a little bit into golf. 2,400 times, Tamsin. It's unbelievable. 2,400 times. 2,400 times. All right. So the final story is about Frank Oz, right? Frank Oz, who worked... A puppet fame. Exactly, with Jim Henson. On the Muppets. Right. So he helped Sesame bring Street. to life Cookie Monster, Miss Piggy, Burton, and the like. Uh, and he's just an interesting story. That's, uh, But it's an interesting story about his parents as much as anything else. It turns out that, um, what is his full name? They have it here. Um, Osnowitz. 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 Is, 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 and uh, matter of fact, it's still his name. He never changed his name legally to Oz. Uh, and uh, his parents came from uh, Belgium, if I believe. I believe that's right. And uh, they were, you know, very mindful of the advance of Hitler, so much so that they had... Uh, made plans to possibly leave the country if Hitler ever got to Antwerp, which ultimately he did, and they did leave the country. But before that, uh, in protest, uh, his father had made a Hitler uh, puppet, which he used to sort of skewer Hitler in performances to sort of make fun of Hitler. Uh, you know, it was satirical. 
but uh, that was kind of dangerous business. So much yeah, so, his, his family encouraged him to bury it in the yard. Well, that's what he did. He put yeah. it. He buried it in the yard. It wasn't that he just put it in the closet. He buried it in the yard. God forbid anybody would find it. And eventually he escaped. Although his, a lot of his family didn't escape. Well, they left when Antwerp was being bombed. They left. And uh, And, uh, they traveled around, uh, ended up in England for a while, where Frank was born. And then they came back, Mm. dug up the poets, poets, puppets. The puppets. Dug up the puppets. Dug up the Hitler puppet. And and the odd thing is that it ends up in an attic or something where years later... Frank Oz discovers it. He had yeah. never seen it. Now his parents were his parents. You know they end up in uh, California, right? Yeah. And um, San Francisco, and they continue to they have day jobs, right? Uh, but they also are still doing puppets, and they um, found the San Francisco Bay Area Puppeteers Guild, mm-hmm. and he grows up with puppets. Right. His father teaches him how to string a marionette. He and he makes money, good money, twenty five bucks an hour as a teenager. Um you know, puppets, yeah. Well doing puppet shows actually. And uh but by the time he's, you know, eighteen, he's saying enough already with the puppets. I want to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. And uh but somehow or another he meets Jim Henson. Yeah. At a at a puppet convention. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a real interesting story. Um, and they but, also say, say, make the point that he's the voice of Yoda. I wanted to get that in in Star Wars. So that's, that's another fine. kind of puppet. Anyway, years later, he, he, he doesn't know anything about the, the Hitler puppet. Right. But years later, he's cleaning out his parents' house. And yeah. in the attic yeah. is this uh, Hitler puppet. And so he's had it on display in his house. Um, an exhibition was put together, uh, the Jim Henson exhibition, Imagination Unlimited, which was at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, and it was about to come out to Contemporary Jewish Museum um, in California. And uh, they, the Jewish Museum was curious, you know, can is there any Jewish spin to this at all? Yeah. And uh, somebody knew of that Frank Oz was Jewish and uh, knew about his uh, parents' experience and, you know, and their harrowing escape. And, you know, um, he didn't know, he doesn't really know that much. His father never spoke about it. They lost a fair amount of their family in the mm-hmm. Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did have, you know, these uh, puppets from years past and he was delighted to lend them to the show. And... Uh, let people find out about yeah, it's, it's, the history it's some of story. it. It is some story. All right. So that was interesting. I mean, uh, and that's what we've got, I think. I think that's... Uh, All right. So let's just uh, go back and continue to pray for rain because we need it. It's going to rain today. Like uh, crazy. From your lips to, to God's ears. To goddesses' it, ears. Yeah. To the God- Ooh, yeah. To the goddesses. That's what we need, some goddesses around here. Anyway, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper, we'll be back.